I don't believe that still photography is, is ever going to rise to where it once was. I think it will stay where it is and it will be pursued by enthusiasts because it is and remains and always will remain a very good conduit for, for self-expression. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 90 with Colin Pryor. Colin is known as one of the world's most respected landscape photographers. He was born in Glasgow and his ability to get out and into the Highlands is definitely what shaped his passion for the outdoors and fostered his interest in photography. His photographs are sensational and capture real sublime moments of light and the landscape, which, as you'll find out in this episode, are the results of meticulous planning and preparation and often take years to achieve. Colin is a photographer who seeks out patterns in the landscape and the hidden links between reality and the imagination. In this episode, we talk about his origins as a photographer, how his craft has taken him around the world, and we discuss his latest project in the Pakistani Karakoram. Colin's a bit of a hero of mine, and when I first visited out a band aged 16, a dozen or so of his images lined the walls of the canteen. It was humbling to sit down with someone who I've admired for so long, and to discover, as is often the case, that he's just a modest man who's managed to turn his passion into his career and his lifestyle. So, I hope you enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed Colin's company. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do leave us a review on iTunes. They make a huge difference to our ability to reach a wider audience. Okay, over to Colin Pryor. So, let's start at the start. Please, could you just introduce yourself? Tell me a bit about who you are and what you do and what you've done. Uh, my name's Colin Pryor. I've been a photographer for 38 years, almost 40. Um, I've managed to survive as an outdoor photographer uh, for that length of period. Uh, the business has changed uh, beyond recognition and um, I've managed to, to see it uh, to this point um, not having shot any video so far. That's rare, I would argue, in the modern world. Very. And um, I got into photography because of its, uh, its, its connection and affinity with uh, more conventional art forms like drawing and painting. And at school, I was quite good at, at art. And the reason I know I was quite good at art was because there was someone in my class that was brilliant at art. And I realised that no matter how much I practised, um, you know, going forward in my life, I could never be as good an artist as that guy was. He had an innate skill, an innate talent. He could draw a face and, I mean, it seems straightforward until you try and put the eyes and the ears and the nose instinctively in the right place. And, you know, I struggled with, it, with that. And so... I kind of recognised that there were people out there um, that had a, a talent and could be always much better than I could be even with practice. Now, that's the way I think, um, perhaps retrospectively, it, it, it wasn't the right thing. And it wasn't really until I was 23 that I, I discovered photography and I found the means by which I could create the type of perfection that I aspired to um, with, with a camera 
and um, and you know set off on my, on my little journey. So, what was it that motivated the photography? Was it your want to find a way to be outdoors, or was it the the art that came first? I suppose. Well, ironically, um, I started scuba diving um, just recreationally, and. Uh, I decided I would take a camera underwater. This kind of fascinated me, the, the idea of putting a camera in a, in a Lexan housing and, and trying to capture some of the things I was seeing underwater. And I really knew nothing about photography uh, at all. So I, I bought myself a Nikon FM and an Icolite underwater housing and um, took it underwater. And I have to say that... My early, early results were, were diabolical. I mean, they showed very, very little. And, and I realised what a mountain I had to climb in terms of learning not only about photography, but the, the whole physics of underwater photography. But I persevered with it. And it, <clears throat> it, was, a, it was very much a big learning process. And, um, and you know, I was struggling um, for for information, and uh, I was pointed at various experts, and these various experts weren't able to answer my questions. and And I realised once I'd learned myself, you know, the right way to do things, that they weren't really experts because they didn't know what they were talking about. And um, what I tried to to create underwater was this. Uh, it was a, a concept that I sort of invented myself, but <clears throat> I tried to reach a state of invisibility. And, and what that means is that, you know, you're underwater in the Scottish logs for generally about half an hour. And that's not a great deal of time to take photographs. So when you're under the water, you want to make sure that you've got every possible opportunity to shoot anything you see. So it meant really organising your kit, you, you know, having really good diving equipment, making sure it was, um, uh, it was all maintained, it didn't squeak and didn't leak, and it was perfect. And it, it was a similar situation with the camera equipment. You know, you, you didn't want to set up this image and find that the flash wouldn't fire um, just at the moment you wanted that shot. So, um, so... That, that, that kind of taught me, um, you know, about the necessity of, of having everything um, maintained and correct so that you could achieve the images that, that you had in your mind's eye. And, and I, I took that thereafter into the outdoors with me as well. Um, and a lot of these big landscape photographs that, uh, that I eventually began to work on... Um, the, the result of what I have referred to as a military strike. And, <clears throat> you know, the most important part of any uh, special forces mission is the reconnaissance. So you've got to go out there, you've got to be prepared to spend the time in the landscape and get to know it. And obviously I'll go out there when the weather is good and sometimes you'll succeed and other times you'll fail. But if you fail, you'll, you'll realise of when the best time to return is. You know, it might be, you know, the following year, you might go a month earlier, a month later, because the sun's going to be in a better position. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the next part of that um, military strike is the preparation. And, and, you know, we'll go back to what I was saying there about the underwater photography. You know, you check your bags when you get home, you clean out everything, you know, make sure your batteries are, um, are, are all ready to go. Everything you need there is packed so that, you know, when the, 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 the weather breaks in your favour, 
that you don't need to check bags. You just lift them and put them in the car and go. And I've got also in the back of my car, I've got a, a sort of plastic box and, and I refer to that as my survival box. And people laugh, you know, about the idea of having a survival box in the back of a discovery <coughs> when you're going into Scotland. It's hardly, you know, a wilderness. But if you've been up um, and camped overnight on, on one of the peaks in Torridon in January, you're going to get nowhere that's going to serve you food. And when you come off, you know, your sugar's low and you, you need food. So you've got to have the ability to cook something up because, you know, you might be driving home, even to, to you know, where I live in Glasgow, it's four, four and a half hours home. So it's, it's a long drive, particularly when you're tired and you haven't really had a great deal of sleep in the tent um, at 3,000 uh, feet or 1,000 metres. So... Um, so these are just some of the, the, the thoughts um, I have um, about uh, the approach that I took with the panoramas. Because I, I guess the other thing about the panoramas is that they have got this um, sense of place about them, but they were never actually intended to be about the sense of place. It, it was always a moment I was trying to capture. And, and what I tried to do was work out in an area where the best viewpoint was to capture other mountains and typically I was always looking for a peak that was surrounded by other peaks so that you've got that angularity in front of you. I mean there's peaks, I mean I've been asked you know most of my you know working life for photographs of Shalian and you know Lochrana um, and I've never been on that mountain but it's you know it's a monolith that stands with nothing round about it there's no other hills that you can shoot the mountain from, and when you're up there, I assume, or from the photographs I've seen online, it you know it's just expanses of view, and it's actually quite dull. You know, it's so so. I was looking for a particular mountain and a particular type of image, and then I was trying to <clears throat> go back there when uh, I was going to capture something really special. You know, that, that light that transforms something that's pretty ordinary for most of its life into something exceptional, something extraordinary. Fascinating. Okay. God, that gives me a lot to go on. So you're, I guess you're an outdoorsman as much as you're a photographer, right? Where did that passion come from? Well, I think what's driven me <clears throat> is, is a, is a deep-rooted uh, passion of the natural world. And um, uh, mountains, I found, were, were the way that I could manifest that best through the medium of photography. Um, I've kind of broadened that a bit. Um, and, I mean, the calendars that I, I continue to produce, they tend to not only have mountain photographs, you know, from, from high points, but they've also got seascapes and they've got forests in it because you obviously want to speak to as broad a church as possible. And um, as much as I'm passionate about some of the, the, the views from the um, elevated points and mountains, they've, they've got a limited appeal to the general public. Um, you know, Monroeists and Fellwalkers really love these photographs. But the general public find them a bit uh, perhaps daunting or intimidating. So um, it's, 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 a, it's a passion of the natural world. And, and strangely enough, um, when I was younger, I mean, I've always had a deep-rooted passion um, of, of birds, of wild birds. And I, I realised when, <clears throat> when I was younger that um, 
and you know, you know, because when I got into photography, there were so many routes that you could you could go uh, into. You, you know, you could go into journalism and specialise in sports, and okay, you, you know, you'd, you'd end up working at the time. You could get a staff job with a newspaper if if you if you went in there as a freelance, and you know, you'd be pretty well looked after with expenses and a pension and. And you'd never earn a great deal of money, but it was a pretty safe job. And, you know, if you liked sport, you were going to go out with teams to different parts of the world. And, and that was a great opportunity. And then, you know, you could, you, could, you could go commercial, which is actually what I did, even although I'm known as a landscape photographer. I've never really made my living as one. Um, and um, uh, you could go socially as well. You, know, you, could, <clears throat> you could do, you know, weddings or, or high street, you know, children, families. There's always a big demand for that. Um, and, um, and, and then, you know, there are quite a number of photographers that are, uh, that are you know, my age that, that made a very good living from shooting stock. You know, um, they, they, they travelled uh, around the world and, you know, their Getty or their other agencies, uh, NPL, uh, someone like that, would sell their images. And although they were doing that in a budget, they were able to pay their bills and go and do what they wanted. And they actually made money from the photographs. But as we all know, the currency of photography has been completely devalued. It's worthless. It's in exactly the same place as music is. Um, and it just took 20 years longer to get there. Well, can you go into detail on that, please, and explain why that is? Well, it's, it's Instagram. It's the, you know, it's the myriad images that we see on a daily basis on Instagram and um, and everyone's a photographer. I mean, I'm only doing what everyone else is doing. And, and uh, as, as time uh, goes on, the craft, which, you know, I'm trying to advocate through my workshops, um, will, will, will go. It, it will become irrelevant. Um, in in the very near future. Do you really believe that? Yeah. You think it'll go? Yeah, it will. It will. Uh, you know, the, the marketplace always finds the cheapest way to do things. And I've said for a while that still photography will go. And it has already been eclipsed by videography. And, you know, when we get into higher resolutions um, on video, I mean, it's happening at the moment. You know, they'll pull the still off that they want for... And what's the still for anyway? It's going to go on a website. Um, it's not as if it's going to go into print anymore. So, the, you know, the images are just going to get pulled off. Nobody's going to hire a still photographer and a videographer. Um, so video is the medium. But there's something a wee bit counterintuitive about this. And either people don't realise or they've forgotten. And... That is, um, I, I mean, sometimes we, you know, we're on websites and, you know, we're, we're sort of frustratingly trying to get a still image to, to play. And of course, it's a still image. And, and moving images are obviously a very good way to, um, to communicate with us online. Um, but uh, the human brain can't store moving images. The human brain, the memory, stores images in single moments. So you can pick a book up, for instance, that you read when you were um, a student, and you, um, you, you, uh, you know, you, you, it might have been twenty years ago. You can go um, uh, to a library, or you'll pick that book up perhaps somewhere randomly, 
and then um, you'll find that as soon as you open that book, you almost instantly know that you've read that book before because the, the, the images are recalled from your brain very quickly. And, you know, conversely, you can sit and watch a movie, you know, on TV until a sequence of events triggers a stored still image in your brain and you realise that you've seen the, the film before and that you've wasted another hour of your life <laughs> watching a movie you've already seen. And... You know, as an advertiser, surely the ability of recall of a powerful single image is 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 much stronger than than a video. I mean, you go into department stores, not that I do very often, but you know, you happen to notice that they've got new video screens. And a lot of that stuff I would submit is whistling in one ear and right out the other, and nothing is sticking. And it's it's a bit I think you know for the for the first time in history we can make moving images for for not very much money. I mean it used to go you know you used to have to pay twenty grand to get a production company to come and even have a chat with you about a film, and now um, you know the whole thing has changed. So we can make moving content very very cheaply. And is it a question of it's the emperor's new clothes? Now, I caveat that with saying I don't believe that still photography is, is ever going to rise to where it once was. I think it will stay where it is and it will be pursued by enthusiasts because it is and remains and always will remain a very good conduit for, for self-expression. Well, that, I think that's the interesting point. Is you, uh, Just to use the music analogy that you brought up earlier, it's like listening to vinyl. You know, vinyl has seen a resurgence. It is continuing to see a resurgence. And that's because people want to listen to an album and they want to hear the sound of vinyl, don't they? They do. How is it any different? It, but it's, it's not, and there is a great parallel uh, with that. But the big challenge, of course, for up-and-coming photographers or, or filmmakers or content providers or whatever they're calling themselves <laughs> now is how they make a living. Um, and the problem is, and I know this from, you know, I, I know one or two commissioning editors um, that are in senior positions. And, you know, they've said to me that they've got a drawer full of content, video films of people who are friends and people they know and people that have asked if they'll have a look at stuff. And they physically don't have enough hours in the day to actually sit and watch that. And, you know, it, it's an awful lot easier to, to look at a... A, you know, a, a portfolio of still images. You can do that quite quickly and consume that and see what the photographer, the artist's about very quickly. But with a film, you've got to sit, you know, and give up, you know, three, four, five minutes of your time to to see what, what that, that filmmaker's about. Well, and to get a little bit philosophical about it, I think that's the, you know, I, I work in film and photo and I, I have never produced a showreel and I hope I never do because creating slightly controversial but creating beautiful moving pictures is not that difficult to do creating outstanding that's a whole different conversation but it's storytelling i think that's what separates people nowadays and and that feeling and that emotion and to come back to what you said right at the start you know you're an artist and that an artist and a photographer you're trying to say something with the photographs that you create that's much deeper and richer and more intelligent than just taking a photograph of something that you see, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, there's quite a lot in, in what you said there, and I think I think it's uh, it's important. 
uh, for photographers or filmmakers. I mean, if we, I mean, I don't have a great deal of experience in film, but um, the content there's so much content on the internet where um, it's just beautiful drone shots, for instance, and there's no story or. It's photographers out in the hill and, you know, they're videoing their journey into a wild place and, you know, the highlights them sitting, you know, brewing up, uh, or, you know, and there needs to be something more than that. There needs to be a dialogue. And, <clears throat> I mean, I've just spent um, a week in, in Harris uh, making a, a video with, with Sigma. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've obviously done this before, but, I mean... The, the guy that was shooting the video, um, I mean, he, he shoots more images in, in a day than I shoot in a year. And, you know, there, there's so much um, footage required, you know, and from often from two cameras from two different angles, um, that, you know, I realise that my job by comparison is so much simpler. Um, and I, I, I shoot very, very few images. I mean, because I know, I know what I want to see. And I think, I think that is, is so important. I, I think there's a lot of photographers out there, you know, very talented photographers. There's a lot of professionals out there and they don't necessarily have something to say about the world. Um, you know, they're, they're good at the technical aspects to go through the motions, but it's a bit like a marriage without love. Um, it's it's like a marriage of convenience, but there needs to be a, you need you know what I think creates inspiring photography is is the, you know the, the artist has got to have a burning passion for for what he or she um, <clears throat> is trying to capture and know in their own mind very clearly that the type of image they're after and and more importantly what they don't want to capture. Yeah, that's interesting. So. How much do you think the character of the photographer plays into the success of the final product? A, a great deal. I think. I think it's 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 got to do what that photographer or artist uh, wants to communicate, and and you know what you see from from competent work is um, is a synergy between the images. You know, they can be in different environments, but. There's a there's a definite thumbprint in there, and it's a vision that's honed, um, and you know it's it's how you can and remain true to that uh, cause, and expand your work um, to incorporate um, new projects, um, so that you 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 um, you're raising your own um, creative uh, horizons. You, you, we need to move forward. I mean, I shot for almost exclusively personally um uh for 25 years i shot those panoramas with a 617 film camera and it was a combination of the hassle of 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 shooting my film and having it processed and then scanned but i i i found latterly that the that that format was becoming a bit of a creative straitjacket and and i really needed to go out and hunt new game which is what i did um, but I've kind of moved back. I mean, I'm, I'm beginning work on a new project um, and I'm using another type of panoramic format. It's not three by one, it's two by one, but I'm, I'm, I'm working within that two one format. And the, the, these formats, I mean, they, they were actually um, conceived by Linhof, the, the German camera company, and and they made the 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 Linhof Technorama 617 and 
Uh, they used to make that camera in, in, I think they originally made it in the 60s and it, it didn't sell that well. And they stopped manufacturing the camera and the second hand price, this would probably have been about um, 1986, 87, 88. The, the, the second hand price of the camera started to go up and up and they eventually re-engineered it and brought in the Technorama 617S and I had the first camera um, in the UK because I realised there was something, I, I kind of um, saw a magazine, a US and American uh, magazine and there were 617 images in it. Um, there were actually crops um, from 5x7 sheet film uh, into 3x1s and there was something about that format that really captured my imagination and I kind of thought I could use this to shoot Scotland in a, in a new way, which is what I did. But to go back to what I was saying, Linhof, um, so they, they designed that camera and and they also made, um, it was a lesser known camera, they also made a tuba one camera as well. And the lens had a, a an eight millimeter lens rise built into it, it was mounted on the camera with an eight mil lens rise and it was really designed for two by one panoramas of buildings. It was an architectural photographer and it wasn't ideal for landscape because it kind of had that eight mil light lens rise on it. And it also had a tripod hole on the top of the camera and it, you could you could mount it with an adapter upside down so you could get an eight mil lens drop on it. Um, but as I say, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose when you've got an eight mil lens rise and you want to point the camera down because you're getting convergence. But the format wasn't for landscape at the time, I didn't think, as powerful as the 3 by one um, But it's, it's, it's a format that appeals more to me now. And, um, and I'm using that. Uh, I'm shooting with a, a Fuji GFX. And um, it's, uh, I mean, you've not got 2-1 on that, unfortunately. You've got 16-9, which is just a little bit deeper. But it's pretty close to it. Um, and... Uh, very, very satisfying to, to see. But you speak a lot about the technical side of it there. And obviously it's a very technical game, which I think that's maybe a lot of what we've lost now is, you know, over there on the floor, there's a Sony A7, which is what I shoot on. And I point it at things and it takes beautiful photographs. When you're going to take a photograph of something, you approach it in a wholly different way, don't you? You know, you talk about that recon approach, that special forces approach. How does that process for you play out where does it start and end well i'm constantly looking for, for new locations um and I'm, i mean i've discovered quite a few uh, new locations this year um and um just where where they've not discovered locations you know i mean when i publish the photographs people are going to think where where is that but there's still there's still there's still areas out there um that are very rich uh, photographically and um, and I, I mean I'm, I guess I'm trying to capture the essence of 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 that natural world in a way that um, that transposes the viewer somewhere else. And I've always said it's not really what's in the photograph; it's where it takes you. Um, you know, it, it should take you and move you somewhere beyond that photograph, wherever that is. Even you know, it's a momentary feeling. But that, that's the that, that that's the challenge I feel, and the other thing that really excites me and is becoming increasingly difficult to find not just in Scotland but anywhere in the world, 
is this idea of undisturbed places. Places where, and, and they're not truly undisturbed because, you know, people talk about Scotland and the wilderness, but it's a man-made wilderness. And so, but these are places that are, that are undisturbed. You know, they're places where there's not dog walkers going through on a daily basis. There's, there's actually very, very little human intervention in them. Um, and as I say, you know, with social media, it's almost impossible to, you know, to save these places. They'll be found. I mean, I, I'm not a particularly active Instagrammer, but occasionally I've posted images and deliberately not mentioned where they are. And someone asks and I don't answer, but someone else does in your behalf. And, you know, once it's out there, it's out there. Is there an ethical issue for you around that? Um, yes and no. Yes, because I don't really want the footfall there. Not, not through selfishness so that I'm the only person with those photographs there, but because I've seen so much evidence in Scotland during my lifetime of places becoming trashed. And once the public in general find them, they, they diminish significantly. I've, you know, I see it constantly year on year. I've seen the most dreadful environmental vandalism happening in some places. And it, it makes me very, very sad. But I also know that if I don't go out and find these places, someone else will. And it's what drives me anyway, um, uh, just to find these undisturbed places. And I've also, although I'm, I'm obviously known for these big pictures, you know, I'm also fascinated with what I call intimate landscapes. Um, they're, they're, they're not macro pictures, but they're generally taken from, um, you know, a metre um, away. And they're, they're, they're landscapes in miniature. You still need the beginning and an end. But you can say a great deal about the, the environment, uh, you know, and if you've got a book... They're ideal for breaking the mapping in a book up. You know, you pick and you think, oh, uh, you know, you come to a picture like that and, and you, you navigate the picture differently. But that, you've just nailed something that I really wanted to talk to you about, which is, you know, you saying that the photography and the craft is dying and I'm desperate to disagree with you because, you know, you're, the way that you create these books, they are designed to be sat down with and you go from start to finish, don't you? And that is art in and of itself and it's it's not an accident that that picture appears on page seven and that one's on page eight is it no no, no that's true and uh, you've, you know i mean i've i've been fortunate that i've had control i need control of the design because the design you know how many photographic books have you seen ruined by bad design and you know even although you've got a mainstream publisher on it um you're I'm very fortunate in, in so far as I've worked with a designer for about 25 years and, you know, and I can say to her, I don't like that. I really don't like that, man. They do, you know, and she's not pissed about that. And, and you, know, the, you know, if she feels strongly about it, she'll say, no, leave, 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 leave that just now. And, and then, you know, but if I go back the next time we meet and I say, look, man, I'm not really sure about that, so she'll knock it out. But she'll challenge me and she, you know, she, she'll do things and say, God, that looks great. You know, that, I, 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 you know, but there's, there's a kind of marriage with a designer. And, and you know, if, if, you, if you, you know, somebody says, you know, we're going to publish a book and this is a designer, you know, they've got their own ideas about the way they work. And, um, I mean, my own designer has realised that, you know, because I've worked with her for so long, you know, 
her talent is letting the photography breathe. And that that is a validation of her good design. I don't mean that my photography is more important than her design. It's a marriage of both. Um, but, you know, we, we both embrace that less is more philosophy. You know, it, it's about subtracting in photography, but also in design. And, and just having, you know, it's that contemporary classic look you're looking for so that it doesn't date. You know, if you've got the most up-to-date fonts, so you're better with sort of classic, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like, you know, if you went to bathroom showrooms just now and you were going to do your bathroom up at the, you know, with leading, um, you know, up to the moment, uh, um, you know, furniture within that bathroom, you know, in 10 years time, it looked so dated, you know, because they're, they're so cutting edge. Um, whereas if you've got a more sort of, classic design there you know you'll get a bit more time out of it before it starts looking like an old person's place <laughs> yeah no and it's clear that you've thought about all of this obviously a lot it plays a huge part in your career and success and i think if you're to use the kind of author or the writing analogy some people write because it's cathartic or for the joy of it and some people write to be read do you take photographs so that do you take photographs for other people or are they for you first? They're always for me, you know. That, I, you know, And it's quite funny because sometimes in workshops and we're chatting away to, the, you know, the client and somebody will say to me, ah, but Colin, you, you, you know where the commercial, you know where the commercial opportunities are for landscape. And I have never, ever, ever gone out once to take a landscape photograph because I thought it would make me money. And I was just saying this to someone a couple of days ago. Um, you know, in the early days when I was an up-and-coming photographer, uh, the, the calendar publishers didn't like 35mm because, you know, it was a small bit of film and it didn't reproduce very well in print. And they wanted better quality print. The same way as the agencies specified, you know, that they wanted, you know, fashion objects shot in a 10 by 8 format or 5 by 4 um, so I bought Hasselblad and, and I loved it, the Zeiss lenses and I hated the square format. Um, but I used to go out and shoot the sort of work that I've always shot and I would submit the transparencies to the, to, to the calendar publishers. And, you know, they would call me up and they would say to me, Colin, we really like your photography, but do you not think you could go out and shoot a harbour or a castle or some, some place that, you know, people recognise? And I politely said to them, well, I'll give it some thought, but there was no chance of me ever doing that. Now, if I had done, you know, I could have made money and they would have published calendars at the time when, you know, as an up-and-coming photographer, everyone needs money. Um, but I kept true to, to my passion. And, and it's ironic, I mean, not so much now, but 10, 15 years ago, these publishers were all wanting to publish, you know, corporate versions of my calendars to sell to, to businesses with, with, with the, the panoramas of well places in them. So, so that's kind of changed quite a bit. But, you know, what I'm doing now isn't as unique as it was. There's a lot of people out there now out wild camping and producing some fantastic work. Um, but again, it, 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 you know, it, it needs to, to I, I feel it needs to be part of a bigger project. It needs to be honed at something rather than than you know photographs the disparate landscape photographs you know shot the same way um so often you know you see this again and again the same type of subject matter the same sort of approach and um 
But at the end of the day, it's a conduit for for personal expression, and if that's what floats people's boats, that's what floats people's boats. Well, that's a big, you know, big interesting tangent. Well, not that interesting tangent, maybe around social media and how the algorithms work. And you know, if you stick a little person on the top left, silhouetted of the cooling, it'll get more hits than if you don't. Very much. And that's the problem. But I think what's quite inspiring is that you say, I go out and I do what I love and, you know, thank God that works, right? And it will continue to. I think part of that is that campaign process. You know, where we are now, you've got this new exhibition and I haven't been to see it yet because I've only just arrived, but it's not just one image, is it? No, I think we've got 17 there. And um, I I was fortunate because upstairs, you know, it's quite a big space and I've, I've I've got three big acrylics in there which are supported by slightly smaller pieces. But um, it's, it's, it's one thing that we don't see. Um, we don't see big photography. And the reason we don't see big photography is because, um, you know, they need to be shown indoors in big spaces which need to be heated. They need to be um, staffed. And the, the, these spaces, the, the, they can't make... Um, sufficient margin on selling photography to make it a viable proposition for them. So we seldom see big photography. And if if you've got big files that are well executed, um, printed beautifully, it's such an experience to... You, you, you experience the landscape in a very, very different way when when, when the pieces are big. So um, if, you're, if you're in the area, I, I, I understand that the exhibition is going to remain up after the festival's over. I'm not sure for how long, but if, if, you're, if you're in uh, the Kendall area or, or in the lakes um, and you're interested in um, mountain photography, then it's, uh, it's not a bad yeah. place to hopefully get some inspiration. Do you get much joy out of exhibitions? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a privilege to, to be given the space to have your work shown. And yes, but, it, you know... It's a strange thing, you know, the creation of the work uh, is really what, what drives me. And and then, you know, the design and the collation of it and moving things around, I mean, that takes a lot of time and effort. And you're totally absorbed. And then you get proofs in and you check them and there's some adjustments to be made here and there. And then the book gets published and, you know, you sort of go through it from front to back two or three times and then you you don't really pay much attention to it. It's kind of done, you know. It's like get, you know if you've got a big sort of exposure piece in the newspaper, you know, you know you've got that, and 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 you know it comes and it go, it goes. But you know that you you know there's not. Um, I mean, you're delighted to get the exposure, but it doesn't you know really fill you with pleasure in the way that shooting a fantastic picture does. Um, and uh, I mean, it's it's quite strange that in a way. Um, and occasionally, you know, you might uh, publish a book, and three months pass, and you kind of dip back into it uh, because it's often like when you're out shooting and you get some pictures. It's probably not a good idea to. I mean, you know, the ones that need to be deleted, but um, you know, if you keep the images two or three weeks and go back and look at them again, you'll you'll see slightly different things in some of the images. I'm not saying that a bad picture will become a good one. It won't. But I, I, I think it's sometimes premature to cull um, too many images initially. 
I mean, you know, any rejects that are technically bad, you know, yes, but um, it, it's sometimes worthwhile, you know, other images. And if you've got big files, you might see an area within one that, um, that, that's got something that captures your imagination. So, um, and it, it's a bit like, um, it's like, you know, RAM and ROM, you know, it's kind of got to drop out the RAM into the ROM um, memory. Uh, and it's sometimes too raw um, initially, and you've just kind of got to let it drop a bit um, so that it's, you know, you're kind of looking at it with a wee bit more of a memory attached to it rather than just as, 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 as work, as, as content. And that then changes the dynamic, doesn't it? Is, it? is it for you or is it for others? And it might be for you at the start. But then I suppose maybe some of your favourite images might not be commercially viable and you've still taken them. That's Yeah, I mean, I mean favourite images, I mean, I've got, obviously got some personal favourites, but, I, I mean, I'm always fascinated and, you know, often I'm, if, if I do um, presentations, which I do in my workshops, um, I'll often ask people what their favourite image um, is. And, um, and it's not through narcissism that I'm asking that question uh, you know it's, I don't want my ego stroke no that's a fabulous picture calling that one there I really like that that's a wonderful picture I don't care about that um, what I'm interested in is what people are responding to because um, what we as photographers need to be very careful of is and I see this an awful lot is that we don't um, indulge ourselves in what I refer to as photographers pictures because we need to be able to communicate. At the end of the day, I'm trying to communicate messages uh, through my work subliminally. And if I don't understand the language that the public understand, then I'm not going to get the opportunity to communicate with them. And it's also got to do with context. And, um, uh, I, I mean... I could show you a picture of a golden eagle I've shot, which I haven't, but I could show you a picture of a golden eagle and you might say to me, oh, that's a great shot of the eagle. Where did you get that? You know, be a reaction to say. Um, and that would be fine. But if I had a collection of work um, with the Scottish Highlands and some pine forests and some mountains and lochs and you're kind of building that up and then you look at the golden eagle in the context of this other work, it suddenly becomes linked to that work that's come before and the work that will come after. And, and you know, I use that eagle analogy, but also um, I referred earlier to those intimate landscapes that help break a book up. And to show that image as a standalone, you won't probably elicit a great response from many people. But seen in context of what I've just described there, it suddenly fits in like a piece of a jigsaw into a bigger picture. Um, and, you know, the general public, um, in terms of photography, the general public um, see photography um, largely um, as calendar pictures. That, you know, if, if, if you show the classic calendar picture to, to the general public, they like to see a horizon, you know, they like the foreground there, they like, you know, different colours, people, the general public love sunsets and sunrises, red colours are lovely, of course. Um, 
But if you show the general public an image that doesn't have a horizon like an intimate landscape, um, and if it's too clever, they won't get it. You know, and if you go abstract, you know, sometimes you look at abstract photography and you don't know whether it's an aerial photograph or if it's something that's a foot wide. And I always kind of think with abstracts is that there should be a visual clue in there that someone can, oh, I see what that is. Oh, that's quite clever. But if they can't work that out, they don't know what they're looking at. It's just frustrating. Now, I know there's some, I've, I, on my workshops, I've met one or two photographers who are superb abstract photographers. I mean, they can really produce beautiful images. And, you know, I've encouraged them to continue doing that, but they don't necessarily communicate very well with the public. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that we should um, dumb down our aspirations as artists and as creative people to, to shoot and spoon feed the public with the images they want to see. We need to challenge that. But, in, you know, there's a middle ground in there somewhere. You know, we need to move that forward to, to try and communicate in new ways with them, but we need to be able to do it in a language that they understand. Yeah. It's so interesting, I think, the balance between your commercial needs and your personal passions as an artist and a photographer. And I, I would like to ask you to kind of put the camera in a bag for a second and to, to talk a little bit about how much or not, how much the travel and the experience of going to these places is important to you um, and those journeys. Well, it's everything. Uh, going there is everything. But I think you, you, it's the camera that's, that's taken me out there. And it's in the bag, don't worry. It's, <laughs> it's, it's in the bag. And, um, but, you know, it, it, it's, you know with, some, with some people, it's fishing. You know, they'll go to small Scottish fill, hill locks and, you know, they might, in the course of time, they, they might go and catch tiger fish in, you know, Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe. And, uh, or, you know, they, 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 they might spread their wings and go and fish in Alaska or somewhere where there's big game. But without the fishing, they wouldn't be going there. And, and that analogy, for me, works with photography. But, um, you know, when I go out um, to shoot, you know, I, I, I go out and the camera's in the bag and the camera doesn't come out until I see something that, that connects with me either intellectually or creatively. The camera's just a tool, it stays in there and I'm, I'm out there, I'm continuously looking um, and, and observing, I'm connecting and that's why I always work alone. Because if you go out with someone, you're inevitably going to start talking rubbish about, you know, well, I like this sort of whiskey or that sort of whiskey. Or, I mean, I've no real interest in football, but, it, you, you know, you find subjects to talk with and you're not noticing, you know. And if there's, if there's conversation there, you don't get the same opportunities to, to you know, to flush wildlife. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you're not connected. I, I, I can't do it. So I'm always out there alone. I want to be alone. And it's a kind of communion with the landscape. I, I, I become part of that, or I feel I do. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm trying to find, um, well, what I'm trying to find and what has fast, what, what drives my work is, is, a, is a fundamental fascination between the relationships between the elements of the natural world. Now, that might be trees and rocks or mountaintops and snow and clouds. It's all 
and, and I see wildlife as part of that. That's just another element within that. Um, so um, that that whole journey thing, and and you know, I touched earlier briefly on 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 wildlife, and and you know, it's taken me a while, but I recognise it as part. You know, it's another element within the landscape, and the way the trees and the rocks are. And when I was younger, I realised that that um, that that landscape photography it, it, it was down to me to arrange and organise everything in that viewfinder. I mean, you're, you're, what you're doing is that you're disassembling the landscape in your brain and 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 you're reassembling it through the viewfinder in a way that corresponds to the way you feel about the world. Um, whereas with wildlife photography, um, okay, you need to be point the camera in the right place at the right time, but, and, and, and you know, Wildlife photographers are really had the benefit of the of technology and cameras, you know, high ISOs and autofocus tracking now and no blackout and you know like the Sony A one, uh, uh, you know, it's just a fantastic camera for wildlife photography. So they're really getting the benefit uh, of that. But so often with wildlife photography, particularly if you're shooting at thirty frames a second, you know, three seconds you've got ninety images to look at. You know, there's there, there's uh, you know, I mean, I've had some photographers say to me they kind of feel it's a bit of a fraud that in there somewhere there's a really good picture. Now, that's not to take away the knowledge and the skill that many wildlife photographers have accumulated over their lifetimes. I'm not trying to, to, to make that statement at all. You know, they, they, they have, many of them have got deep knowledge about where to find birds and, uh, and animals at, at different times of the year. Um, but... Uh, you know the point I was making is that for me, um, I, 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 you know, that I saw wildlife photography as as um, it was chance that necessarily would give you the best picture. Whereas with landscape, it was all down to to me and the ability to to arrange these elements in the viewfinder in a way um, that 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 you know corresponded to the way that I saw the landscape in front of me. Yeah, and, and I think that's right. And there's there's no <laughs> professional wildlife photographer here, so we can't they can't defend themselves. But there's it's a different thing, isn't it? You're pressing the shutter once to take to make that moment. I think make is a particular you know choice of word, whereas trying to capture a kingfisher yeah. the exact moment that you know they pierce the fish or whatever that's that's reportage. That and of course wildlife photography is artistry in its own way. But indeed, it's we're comparing. With you know squash and tennis, yeah, very much, yeah, very much. So, just a slight curveball: how much you know you've been traveling the world for a while now, and you've seen a lot of it, and you've seen it change. And you you talked about Scotland and how it's a man-made landscape. Could you just explain what you mean by a man-made landscape? Well, the Scotland that most people recognise um, with a heather on it, I mean, the heather's not natural. Um, it's the result of overgrazing, mainly by sheep and, and by the huge deer populations that are, that are on the estates. And the glens um, were at one time heavily forested, um, but most, um, most of that forest would have gone by the 17th century. Um, for 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 charcoal, there was a lot of charcoal, you know, for for iron smelting and for shipbuilding and construction in general, and of course for heating. Um, so, 
I mean, the, you know, the hills are bare now, and uh, you know we're seeing now, uh, uh, you know, a lot of rewilding beginning to happen in Scotland, and you know, one or two people have, have you know, asked me, um, am I going to get involved in that story? And um, I, I, I would, <coughs> I would like to, but I think it's very difficult to do anything other than a reportage job on rewilding. You know, you, you've got people planting trees, or, um you know, putting deer fences up or, and, you know, other people have already done that and done it, you know, very well. So um, I, I think it, it's a job for someone else. It's journalism, isn't it? It is journalism. Um, yeah. And it's not really what I, 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 it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't interest me uh, doing that. Yeah. Work. No, that makes sense. And I, I think as well, you know, the state of the world and the, without being too pessimistic, you know, things aren't, brilliant at the moment things are changing does that affect and influence your work or do you try to keep it separate i i mean i i i've i've you know throughout my career i've you know i I keep my opinions to myself um i keep off social media you know i'll I'll post photographs or you know if there's anything you know worthwhile mentioning i'll put in facebook but i don't get involved with causes um i I don't get involved with you know the 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 two hot potatoes politics and religion i mean you know because they're you know i mean scotland's a divided country at the moment and you know if you start making opinions about your opinion about you know independence for instance you know you've got you've got a a, a big part of the population are going to start saying well i like his pictures but i don't like his politics (laughs) you know and you know i've kind of learned that you know people aren't interested in my opinions you know, they they, they, they they like my work as a photographer, um, you know, and that's all that's important to me. You know, that's all that should be important. Well, there's two arguments, aren't there? There's one that says that we should use our platforms for being vocal, but the other, the counter-argument, is actually there's, uh, I would argue maybe controversially, there's a level of arrogance around thinking we're qualified to have one. You know, yeah. You're a photographer. Exactly. I'm a photographer. And... You know, you've seen it. Um, you know, uh, 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 on on television, you've got pop stars there. You know, m- mouthing off their opinion. You know, they may be fantastic artists, but you know, why should we be interested in what they have to say about politics? I think it's a mistake. So, if you're not interested in politics or well, if you're not going to talk about politics and religion, sorry, I should say, what are you trying to say with the work that you create? Well, I, I mean, I know I'm not going to save the planet. Um, I've known that for a long time. Um, but I, I just want to try and communicate um, the, just the sublimity of uh, um, the, the natural world and, and um, ju- just what is actually out there that you know it's sometimes difficult to touch but um you know what i have recognized is that the general public are so divorced from the natural world i mean you know their ability to distinguish not just birds but trees and plants um you know because they've not spent any time there and you know, everyone bangs on about the environment, but if you haven't spent any time in it, how can you have an empathy with it? 
Well, you say, exactly, and you say you're not going to save the world, but you're doing your bit because there's this really cheesy David Attenborough quote that I love, which is, um, people will never protect what they don't love and they'll never love what they haven't experienced. Indeed. And so you're essentially giving them that experience, aren't you? Well, Um, I'm I'm trying to show them something they might not witness themselves, highly unlikely, and, and... but what's it, you know, is it, is it, is it going to change their behaviour? No. Um, but, you know, I do it for me, not for them. Um, but I, I, know, I, I know when it's working, you know, I, I know the pixels at work that communicate, communicate something special. Um, but I, I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm doing it for myself. But hopefully it takes people to a place that in the course of time won't exist. Yeah. I said to you at the start, I sat in Outward Bound at 16 and there were 20 of your photos surrounding me at Lockheel Canteen. So maybe that did something. But I think there is, you know, hanging, we hang pictures on our walls, don't we? We're, we're nesters as a species and looking at those images as we do when we hang them there, it has an effect on how we feel about the place. It, very much. And wall art is, is really one area where... Um, uh, Photographers can sell. <coughs> excuse me. Photographers can sell uh, their images if, if they're doing it in, in the right way. Um, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do properly, um, and I'm currently at the moment working on a new website that we're not going to launch before Christmas because it's too close now. But um, I, I think we'll, we're, we're we're looking at the beginning of February, and it, it's going to offer a much much wider range of artwork in sizes and in different media and um, that'll be done and fulfilled by um, a third party and it's taken quite a bit of investment and time a a lot of time to do Um, but uh, the internet is really um, where it is for for photographers I mean retail Mm. the high street is a very very challenging environment I still deal with retailers but um, you know going back to your your um, statement there about the, the all the the frame prints up in Lochiel, um, you know back in the, uh, you know between ninety five and probably two thousand and five there were lots of independent retailers and I used to, um, I used to have great um distribution amongst uh, most of the galleries throughout the UK, and I sold a lot of that work, um, but of course it had to be published um i you know i was running prints at a thousand you know a thousand at a time to get the unit cost down to where i needed to be so that work had to be stored and you know it it was distributed and you know i had i had distribution in germany and in france and a bit in italy and a bit in the us and um you know it was a big business and i kind of thought um you know i i kind of recognized where photography was going and and I, i i I, you know, I built that business and I spent a lot of time and money going to art exhibitions. You know, I went to, to New York as well um, and exhibited there. And um, I kind of wanted something that was my own, that wasn't dependent on other people commissioning me to, to do commercial photography. And of course, um, the, you know, that, that whole business, you know, it, it, it sort of dwindled away because the retailers couldn't survive in the high street. I mean, there's very few um, local frame shops now. I mean, there might be one or two, but you know, the problem they have is that you know they they're, they're they're you know they're doing football jumpers and people's artwork and they're making a living from that. Um, but 
you know they haven't got the space or the capacity or the scale to 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 start producing big pieces and the packaging and and I mean it's a I mean it's a factory. You need a factory to be able to do that. Mm. Um, and um, that's a challenge. You know, it's where where can photographers make a living going forward? I mean, if you can't sell pictures and make money from that, which is over, um, how then do you survive as a photographer? Because it's important, I suppose, to stress uh, that that you need to be able to afford to follow your own dreams. And, and you know, what some photographers haven't managed to work out is they're not going to get paid for what they want to do. They'll need to live other people's dreams. And I was fortuitous when I was younger because I worked in events. I worked in exhibitions and trade exhibitions. And, um, you know, I had three photographers that worked for me and we used to do about between 40 and 45 trade shows a year. And, you know, I had the, I had the franchise to sell photography in these. It's pre-digital, obviously. But, you know, people, you know, were paying 125 pounds to have one electric plug put in their stand. So, you know, a couple of hundred quid for photography was nothing. And that's really what set me up in business and um, helped establish me. And then, of course, I, I started to get creative work from British Airways and, and that, that kind of gave me, um, you know, a, a bit of recognition as an artist. But it, it was the exhibitions and, you know, there were intense periods that I worked and then there was downtime. I mean, ex exhibitions tend to avoid summer holidays and Christmas. So uh, actually, you know, because I had money, you know, um, coming in and, and the good thing was that with exhibitions, most of them are annual. The big ones tended to be biannual, the biggest ones. Um, you you kind of knew roughly what sort of money you would bring in the following year. So I was actually, that, that enabled me to go out and follow my own passion in, in, the, in the Scottish landscape. And um, it was through that work that I got recognition, for, um, that, Sco that Scottish panoramic work that I got recognition from British Airways and they commissioned me to shoot four calendars. So I got round 50 countries um, over that four years up the front end of aircrafts and I had a fantastic budget to do it on and no one will ever commission travel photography like that again it was just right place right time yeah and like you say the world's changed and it's interesting what you say though about the commerciality of it because and how do photographers now young photographers get into it I think it's easy for me to say because I do it for a living but the question is whether or not we need to do it professionally I think it's often when you say to someone, I'm a photographer, they say, oh, professional. It's like one of the first things they say. And you kind of go, yeah. And they sort of like, there's this reverence. And you're like, well, hang on, it's just my job. But, you know, amateur is kind of, I think amateur is looked at as a bit of a, we look down on amateurs. Amateur, I don't know if you know this, I only found out this year, comes from Latin, more for the love. more. I mean, amateurs do it for the love of it. And so, you know, do we need to be paid for it? There are so many amazing photographers out there who we don't even know they're taking images. We don't, they're, not, they're making pictures and we don't I know agree. about it. I agree. And I don't know, I find a lot of power in that because it makes me feel like, as an art, that's why I disagree with you in a good way. It's not dying. It's just the industry's changing. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that too. I, I don't think it's dying. It's changing. It's, it's learning how to survive in that industry. Um no, I think that there's always there will always be a demand for professional image makers. Um, but I mean that that's for certain. Um, 
I think I think what's changed though is um, the number. I mean, I, I never really use the term amateur photographer. I tend to refer um, to non-professionals as recreational photographers. Um, but there are so many recreational photographers out there. I mean, there's 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 a lot of retired people that, um, or there's people that work in shifts and they might do two days photography a week. They might be shooting pets. They might be shooting weddings. They might be shooting people. They might be shooting landscapes. But they've eroded uh, the day rates of working photographers to such a degree that it's hardly worthwhile, mm. um, you know, for what you've been paid. Because when I when I came into photography, it was one of these backdoor professions where, um, you know, I mean, I, I, start, I, I started working, you know, when I, I, I went freelance, I started to get work from a group of advertising agencies. There were seven agencies in Glasgow. Um, they were called Rex Stewart and Associates. And there were, there were some big agencies in there. And they had, one of the agencies had in-house photography. So the, 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 the group used to buy a lot of the below-the-line work um, in-house. And for the big campaigns, they'd be in London, um, you know, with the big-name photographers shooting the, the campaigns. You know, it was all no video then. It was all stills. Um, but, you know, I was, I was earning the same dairy as a lawyer or a doctor would, would um, then from those ad agencies for, from, for, for working. And I mean, you know, we're not doing that now. Well, adapt or die, isn't it? That's yeah. But things change. Um, and it's, so you, you could, you know, back then you could, you could make a lot of money. I quite a lot of people in London making lots of, you know, really big money, uh, as still photographers. Um, and it was skilled. And of course, it was driven by the fact that everything was going into print and they wanted the highest quality images for, for print. So that demanded, um, you know, if you were working in studios, you know, with five, four cameras and because you were having to stop apertures down, you know, you needed lots of really powerful flash and then, you know, on to location with all that gear and crews of people polishing cars and you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. it was a different time. Um, but, uh, and of course, you know, a lot of the fashion guys that were in London, you know, they were, you know, rubbing shoulders with all the supermodels and, yeah. uh, and you know, it was a, a, a way of life. You know, they had access to people that were really wealthy. Maybe um, you should have gone into that. I wasn't cut out for that. Um, hey, so just to draw us to a close, I always ask two questions at the end of every interview. Um, interpret them as you see fit. What scares you? What scares me? Um, I think what scares me most throughout my working life is um, not having enough money, not having enough money. And, and you know, since I started working for myself, which was in 1982, you know, I, I've, I've been hard, hard at it. I mean, and I'm still working at that pitch all the time. You've got to, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've got a very nice lifestyle, but it's like having an aircraft carrier at sea it needs all the other ships to maintain it. Um, so you, you've just got to keep at it all the time. It's relentless. And, um, 
you know, I mean, I can't keep going forever, but, uh, you know, I do something that I'm passionate about. So, you know, I'll probably give it another five years. And as long as people want to come and, um, you know, learn on, on the workshops, I'll, I'll keep running these. I mean, I might wind them down a wee bit um, in the course of time, but uh, I enjoy doing them. And, and we're going to some of the best places in Scotland for, for photography. And, mm. and um, uh so that that's 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 what um, uh, I, I would say. It's that ability to maintain your lifestyle, you know. And and I've been able to do that. I've been very for for you know fortunate. And of course, you know, health plays into that as well. And you know, again, fortunately, I've managed to have good health all my life. And. If you don't, then, you know, you need to cut your cloth accordingly. Mm. Yeah. What brings you hope? What brings me hope? Um, just the fact that the sun rises every morning and sets every evening. And uh, the seasons, the, the changing seasons. I like these cycles. It's that repetition. It's something comforting in that. And, um, you know... Um, as someone said to me recently, you know, um, and he was, he, he's a man that's, is, is, is a bit older than me. He said, Colin, when you're waking up in the morning and you're still breathing, he said, that's a big bonus. Nice. Yeah. I think you've seen more, uh, sunrises and sunsets than most, eh? Yeah. I've, I've, I've had my fair share of them. Um, it's it's fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I, of the two, I think I prefer sunrise. Um, just you know, because you get mists that form up, and it's just something fresh and new about it all. But having said that, I've I've witnessed some fantastic sunsets in the mountains as well, and um, it's been a great journey. Um, I've I've had a great journey, and I, and in many ways, you know, I think I'm the end of an era. Um, certainly of of you know, uh, having lived through the best years of analog photography and and lived through the digital revolution, um, and of course that created new business models which weren't previously possible. So <clears throat> it's it's really been the the workshops that have that have maintained my standard of living. Um, uh, through, through, well, I started them in two thousand and seven. And that's really where the only money in photography is at the moment. It's in it's in education. It's in people. Um, so the, the business has become far more about people and less about images. Mm. But I've never lost that passion um, for 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 pictures. And you know, I was I was saying to someone recently. I mean, when I was in, uh, you know doing the exhibitions, um, we you know we, we worked in um, Earl's Court and Olympia and. Um, in GMEX and there were some international venues we went on as well but the, obviously there were some in Glasgow and that's where I started and I knew because of the press days I knew a lot of the the, 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 the more mature press photographers and of course they'd turn up you know for the, there was a press call and um, they'd turn up and they'd come into the press office and um, they all had cars taxis you know there were the taxis there the, you know company taxis that were paid for by the newspaper so the, the, you know, champagne, right away, champagne. So, you know, they, they wouldn't do anything until they had three glasses of champagne. And, you know, they, they, they were so, so funny. I mean, I used to have tears running down my face. 
just listening to them. And um, but you know, talk to him about photography. You know, cameras. What? And I kind of recognised that they'd kind of rusted out. And you know, they'd been doing those exhibitions and and all these press calls year after year after year. And probably nine times out of ten, their picture wouldn't even get into the newspaper because it'd been knocked out with something else that came in. And they were just, you know, disinterested in the whole thing. And, you know, I'm as um, passionate about taking images now as I was when I first picked up a camera. And, um, you know, that frightens me as well. If I didn't have that, what I would do. Brilliant. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Colin's work at colinpryor.co.uk. The podcast is a Cold House production and is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Ola O'Murray and Alex Hall. You can keep up to date with us on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can email info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.